0: today we're going to begin chapter 20 of the gospel of john uh, we have two more chapters left chapter 20 chapter 21 but there's a lot a, a great deal of material in these chapters so i want to spend a lot of time on it and i thought i would open with um showing you uh, a, a this is some research i did in a long time well not a long time ago several years ago anyway i thought i'd just review this with you um th- this this is an important piece of evidence for the validity of the resurrection, and um, it's the way in which you put together uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Book of Acts. How many times did Jesus appear to human beings after the resurrection? And so, in this slide that you're looking at, uh, Jesus' uh, resurrection occurred on April the 5th, AD 33, and this is the best way in which we can harmonize and and put in a chronology, a a timeline, uh, what happened when uh, in the accounts in all four books plus the book of Acts. So the very first thing is the angel rolled away the stone from Jesus' tomb, and that is not to let Jesus out. Jesus is already out. It's to prove that he is out. The women then visited the tomb, discovered him missing. Mary Magdalene ran to tell Peter and John The other women remaining at the tomb saw two angels who told them about the resurrection. Peter and John then visit Jesus' tomb. We'll read about that in a minute. And Mary Magdalene returns to the tomb and she is the first one and all gospels agree. Mary Magdalene is the first person to see in person the resurrected Jesus Christ. We will read about that in a moment. The second appearance is to the other group of women that were with Mary Magdalene, and we will not cover that. That's in Matthew. Then those who guarded the tomb reported to religious teachers how the angel rolled away the stone. They were then bribed, which is a hilarious story when you read it in Matthew 28. Then Jesus appeared to Peter, the third appearance. That's recorded again when you're putting everything together. Then Sunday afternoon, we will read about, uh, we will not read about that. That's in the the Gospel of Luke. The appearance of two amassed disciples. Mm -hmm. And then that evening, with all of the apostles gathered with the two, two disciples, but Thomas is absent, he appears, his fifth appearance. The following Sunday, a week later, he appears to all the disciples plus Thomas. And we will read about that in a little bit. That's when Thomas believed. Then the following 32 days, because there are 40 days that separate the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension. And 10 days after that, Pentecost is the coming of the Holy Spirit. His seventh appearance is to the seven disciples. We will read about that at the very end of the Gospel of John. And then this comes from 1 Corinthians. He appears to the the 500. And that's a very important appearance. Paul uses that in, in a very important way in his argument for the evidence for the resurrection. His ninth appearance is to his brother, James. And that's when James believes. James is the writer of the epistle of James in the New Testament. And then the final appearance is to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And then that is when he ascends back to heaven. So I don't know if that's important to you. It was important for me to do that research and put it all together, but we, we can sequence all that And it just gives us, again, another block of truth uh, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When the Bible says, we're going to read that, when the Bible says there are many witnesses to the resurrection, this is just one way in which you can itemize all the witnesses. It's hundreds and hundreds of people. That's all we're going to do. Are we going to get that handout, Jim? That's up to you if you want it. We do want it. Would you send it to me so I can send it out, hey, Fred? I've already copied it. I'll, I'll get it mailed out here in a minute. Oh, perfect. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, Thank I, you, Glenn. I got it already. Yep. Thank you. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if you guys would want the result of it. I just thought I'd do it. Let's now look at chapter twenty. And and uh, you know, again, the, the crucifixion has occurred. The burial has occurred. We covered all that last week. Now, on the first day of the week, and and remember, the way. Uh, they itemized time at that uh, in, in that period and it's sort of the same way we do. The first day of the week is Sunday, not Monday. The first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. As I said when I was quickly going through that itemization, all gospels agree that Mary Magdalene is the first to see the resurrected Jesus. But again, following the the chronology that we put together, she then runs back to Jerusalem. To the city, and talks to Simon Peter and the other disciple. We will learn in a minute that's John, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, "They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him." Now the we refers to remember Mary Magdalene is accompanied by several other women. We'll see who they are in just a minute. But I, what is always interesting to me is what she says. She doesn't tell Simon. Peter and John, that Jesus has been resurrected, she says, they've taken him out of the tomb. And so she is going to have to meet, as a R, have to meet Jesus personally to become convinced that he is genuinely resurrected. Their assumption is somebody stole the body. Continuing verse 3, so Peter went with the other disciple, that's John, and they were going toward the tomb, but both of them were running together but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. This is John. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, lying, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in the place by itself. Now, let's stop here for just a moment. This is undoubtedly very familiar to you. We read this on Easter and so on. You probably read it many, many times, but I I want you to observe several things here that are very important for our apologetic for the resurrection. First of all, note that Simon Peter doesn't just look into the tomb. He goes into the tomb. Now, I wish I could take you to Israel right now, get on a plane and we look, there are a number of places you can visit that give you one very literal tomb from the first century. But I wanna just review again, what what does this look like? You might think it's like a big rock with a small space and that's it. These are fairly large structures. And since this is Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, he is a wealthy man, So this would have more than likely been one of the larger tombs. They would cut out of the rock sort of a rectangular shape grave. And it could be of varied sizes, but all along the perimeter of the rectangle would be ledges. And those ledges would be for two purposes. Purpose number one, the person who has just died, you would lay that person on one of those ledges. They would be wrapped in linen, with as Jesus was already, and packed with a lot of spices and things that would smell good. And that was a very, very easy thing to understand why they did that. That would help to neutralize the smell of the decaying body. One year later, the family would go back to the tomb, unwrap the linens. By that time, most of the body has been deteriorated. it's been, uh, It's decayed. They would remove the bones, wash the bones, And then in another part of that same tomb would be what were called ossuaries, rectangular boxes in which they would place the bones of all the members of the family. So these are family tombs. We have found many of these in archeological digs over the last 200 years. And so we know exactly what this would have looked like. I mean, whether we found the real tomb of Jesus or not is another question. But the point is, I want you to just kind of have that picture So you had to actually step into the tomb and look around to see if the body was still there. John didn't do that. Peter did do that. He stepped into the tomb and looked and saw what did he see? He saw the linens that had wrapped the body of Jesus neatly folded on the ledge. In addition, John tells us here in, in his account, he found the suderion. That's the face cloth that covered the entire face, the upper part of the torso. It too, where Jesus' head was, it was lying there folded. So at the bottom of the ledge were the folded linens. At the front part of the ledge was the folded suderion linen. Now listen, if someone stole the body, they wouldn't have been that neat. So Jesus As he is being resurrected, folded the linens that wrapped his body, folded his sudarion, and placed both neatly on the ledge. That, men, is further absolute confirmation of the resurrection. Now, you may choose to deny this. I mean, I'm talking about people who don't believe this is the word of God. But John is going out of his way to give us tangible, tactile evidence for the resurrection. if if you're going to say the body was stolen, they're not going to take that time to neatly fold everything. They're interested in one thing, getting their body out and getting out getting out out of the area of the garden where the tomb is. And that's not what happened. This is just a very important piece of information. John would not have had to tell us this, but he was there with Peter. And so he recorded exactly what they saw which again is tangible evidence that the resurrection really did occur. Continuing, then the other disciple, remember that's John, who had reached the term first, also went in, he saw and believed. Now what does he believe? I mean, he already has put his faith in Jesus, but he believes that the resurrection has occurred. As I said now about four times, the tactile, tangible evidence is incontrovertible, jesus is alive for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead then the disciples went back to their homes so john is putting these pieces together psalm 16 verse 10 hosea chapter 6 2 Too many of the many old testament passages you could go to about the prophetic uh, prophecy of the coming resurrection of the messiah and so again now you have another appearance but it's not an appearance of Jesus. They're looking at the evidence. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Now, which Mary is? This is Mary Magdalene, the one who had seen the stone rolled away, ran to tell Peter and John, and now is back in the garden. Weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, stooped to look into the tomb. Then she saw two angels in white. The gospels tell us, the gospel accounts in Mark and Luke and Matthew, These are two angels, they're in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the foot. Now, John and Peter didn't see that. So presumably, between the time Peter and John leave the tomb, and Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb and steps into the tomb, these two angels show up. This is going to confirm to her, something's happened. Woman, they say, why are you weeping? They have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Again, she's still assuming somebody stole the body. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now, there are two possibilities why she did not know Jesus. Number one, as Jesus uh, will do if you would study Luke chapter 24, with the two Emmaus disciples as they're walking on the road between Jerusalem and Emmaus, It says that Jesus' identity was hidden from them. It doesn't tell us that here. These are the other possibility. The last time that Mary Magdalene saw Jesus was hanging on the cross, and his body, his, 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 his face, everything about Jesus would have been a bloody, distorted, disfigured, horrible mess. Now she sees... Jesus, in white, resurrected, restored, and so she doesn't recognize him. Jesus said, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And as soon as he uttered her name, she knew who it was. I want you to think with me about this. You might remember, if you go back to John chapter 10, uh, I believe it's about verse 3 or verse 4. John chapter 10, Jesus is using the metaphor, I am the shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know my name, and so Jesus utters Mary's name. She knows who it is, and as That is a powerful truth for me. It's a very powerful truth for my wife that God is so interested in me, he knows my name. Max Licato, who's a very creative, imaginative writer, says, what I like to think is Jesus has my name as a magnet on his refrigerator. I mean, again, you know, it's kind of a funny way of saying it, but this is the intimacy, the intimacy of our relationship with the living God. He knows our name, and that's John 10 tells us that. But here he utters this. She turns, and in Aramaic says, Rabboni, which means teacher. And so she knows who it is. Now Jesus says something that we have to kind of take apart theologically and then put it back together again. So he then says to her, verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Well, let's stop here for just a minute. Is this a rebuke? It is a gentle rebuke, but I want you to I want you to think with me about the the deeper theological meaning of this. I have not yet ascended to the Father. My work is done. My death, burial, and resurrection has been completed. The redemptive plan is finalized. Don't cling to me. We're not going back to the old order. We're not going back to the way things used to be. I'm ascending to the Father, and here you have to go back, and whether she understood all this or not, I don't know, but you have to go back to John 14, 15, and 16. Jesus is going back to the Father so he can send the Holy Spirit, as he ushers in the new covenant, the new order. So when Jesus says, do not cling to me, I have not yet ascended my father, he in effect is saying to her, don't cling to me and thinking that this, the, the way things used to be are going to be returned. No, the new order has dawned. Don't cling to me wanting to hold on to the old. I'm going back to the father, the new era, the new order, the new covenant is being inaugurated. And so it's a gentle rebuke, In the sense that, don't think we're going back to the old. The new has begun. And that is, of course, marked by his victorious ascension. And we know that's what he means, because look at the pronouns. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Note those pronouns, my, my, your, my, your, the shared privileges of being in the family of God. Part of the new order is the family of God has begun, Wherein he calls these disciples his brothers, that's why Paul will, in his 13 letters, encourage the believers in the early church to address one another's brothers and sisters in the Lord, because we're in the family of God. Paul will develop that in his theology of being adopted into the family of God. And so this is an extraordinary summary. Just these, this, this one single verse, verse 17, is an, an incredible summary of the new covenant, of the new order of the new era that has dawned. Don't cling to me, Mary. We're not going back to the old. I'm ascending to the father and the demonstrable evidence of the change is, they're my brothers. My father, your father, my God, your God. A personal intimacy and relationship that was inconceivable to a Jewish person in the first century. And this is all made possible because the redemptive work of Jesus Christ is completed. He's headed back to heaven in 40 days. And so Mary then went back and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her, what we just read uh, a moment ago. So I hope I was able to summarize and clarify the extraordinary nature of the Lord's words here to Mary Magdalene, and then to the disciples, because she reported to the disciples all that Christ had said. Yeah. All right. Are you with me? Any yeah, a question. Um, do you think that Mary was absorbing um, any or most of what you have just shared with us? I, I, I don't know if I can ad, ad, adequately and honestly answer that question. I, I just don't know. You would have to be able to get into her mind, so I, I I just don't know. Over time, I think the answer would be yes. Yes, but I remember. I mean, I think all of us, because this is so familiar, all of us have to try to really put ourselves in the in the in in the place of these people. She's the first one to see the resurrected Jesus and hear these absolutely astonishing words. <laughs> so I mean, did she get it all? And if I, I don't know. I, I just don't know. I'm a little skeptical that she did, but it doesn't mean she didn't. But yeah. certainly in the days that will follow, uh, she did, as they all did, because that's what the book of Acts is all about. They got it, and they go out and change the world. <clears throat> okay? All right. If no other questions, let's move on. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, so this is Sunday, and now it's evening, the door's being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. All right? Now remember, John is the writer of this. John is in that room. And so John chooses to tell us an important piece of information. The room where we were is locked because... We know the Jewish, remember John, when John uses the phrase the Jews, he doesn't mean just broadly all the Jews, he means the Sanhedrin. The Jews is John's way of talking about the Jewish leadership. So they're afraid, understandably, of what the Sanhedrin is going to do to them because they know what they did to Jesus. So they're afraid, but he tells us the door is being locked. Why is he telling us that piece of information? Because the Lord Jesus is going to come right through that door. So John wants to just emphasize once again, here is another piece of evidence that something has changed. In the incarnation before the resurrection, Jesus didn't walk through doors. Once the resurrection occurred, Jesus does that. And so this is that supernatural dimension of Jesus, the God-man, but now the resurrected God-man. And it just says very clearly, the language is Jesus came and stood among them. So, I mean, the way we're to infer that and to understand that is Jesus just shows up, and the very first thing he says to them, this is a Hebrew greeting. Now, granted, we're reading in English, which is translated from the Greek, but these are Jewish people, and so Jesus would have said to them, shalom. When it says, peace be with you, he would have said one thing, shalom. Now, what does that mean? Well, there are two levels to that one is this was just a typical greeting actually both the greeting and i'll see you tomorrow shalom it's both the greeting and the exit but i mean i have a lot of friends in israel and when they write me or call me or email me the very first thing they always say is shalom jim that's still the way in which the typical jewish person especially those in israel but typical jewish greet people but what does that mean there's the second level shalom means Everything is now right with God. Things have been resolved. Things have been reconciled. Genuine shalom is now possible. And that's why the Apostle Paul will pick up on this in his writings in both Romans, in Romans 5, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that the result of the reconciliation with God that Jesus Christ accomplishes is peace. And then in chapter 4 of the book of Philippians, he will write a whole discourse on what the peace of God means. So, when Jesus says that, it has those two levels of meaning. It's a normal greeting, but it also has that deeper meaning. Things are now right. Things have been reconciled. All is well between you and God. When he said this, He showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. That has to be one of the greatest understatements ever written in human history. You know, that they were glad when they saw the Lord. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, they were glad when they saw the Lord. I mean, this is the most exciting thing these men have ever seen. Jesus then said to them, (coughs) verse 24, uh, part 21. Again, same thing. Peace be with you. Shalom be with you. As the Father has sent me, so even I am sending you. So again, before we move on to verse 22, this is is an important context uh, for us to understand. This, in a way, is the commissioning of these disciples to carry on Jesus' work, until Pentecost. Remember, Pentecost is 50 days, well, now it would be like 49 days later, because from Passover to Pentecost is 50 days. Pentecost was a major Jewish holiday. It's going to become the holiday in which the Holy Spirit comes. But anyway, leaving that aside, so they have about nearly 50 days between now, when Christ is speaking these words, and when the, the Holy Spirit comes. Jesus has work for them to do. They are going to be representing him. They are going to be in the middle of the most hostile city on planet Earth to this new faith, the center of first century Judaism. And so he's saying, Shalom be with you. The peace of God be with you. Now, he says, I'm commissioning you. As the father sent me, on sending you. Now he will repeat that, and that will become what will be the great commission in Matthew 28, what will be the material in Acts chapter 1 verse 7 and 8, when he sends them out before he goes back to, to heaven to be with the Father. But this is the commissioning. But as he commissions them to be his representative, and I want you to understand the language as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Their commissioning to represent Jesus Christ is an extension of his commissioning by the Heavenly Father. Do you see the parallel? This is very important. We are to they are to make that conclusion, and we are to make that conclusion. As the Father commissioned me to go into this dark, hostile, rebellious world over which Satan rules to be the savior of that world, I am sending you into the world to represent me. So that as the father commissioned me, I'm commissioning you. So their commissioning is an extension of the father's commissioning of Jesus. But as the father gave him the authority to be the savior of the world, Jesus needs to give them authority and power. And what is that going to be? It's going to be the Holy Spirit. Now Pentecost isn't going to come for fifty more days. So verse twenty-two. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, "Receive the Holy Spirit." Now this is—I have no other way to understand this Then this is kind of a temporary and and, and enabling of power for them until. Pentecost occurs, but they need that, because even in these 50 days, Jesus will have some things for them to do, and I want you to notice something. John puts it this way, he breathed on them. That takes us back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when God breathed life into Adam. And so you have again, and there is no doubt that we are to make this parallel here as well. As God breathed life into Adam in Genesis 2:7, and Adam became a human being, creating the image of God, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Here, Jesus is breathing on these disciples and receiving the Holy Spirit. This is a new creative work of God giving, enabling power, it is temporary, it is unique, it will be finalized at Pentecost. But in addition to that, we see something else. Uh, Part of this authority, part of this power that they will now have, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold the forgiveness of any, it is withheld. As Jesus, in his commissioning by the Father, was to, through his redemptive work, be able to make the forgiveness of sin possible, these disciples will do the same thing. The extension of the power and authority of Jesus that was commissioned by the Father is now an extension to them, because their mission is to announce that God is offering forgiveness to the human race through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And those words, those verbs, forgiven, the middle of verse 23, and withheld, that's how the ESV, which is the translation I read from, how it's translated, those are in the perfect tense in Greek. I know that doesn't mean anything to you unless you've really studied the language, But this this is very important. It is a past act that has ongoing consequences. So this isn't only capturing in the perfect tense. This isn't only capturing something that happens in space-time. It also captures what happens and the ongoing result of what has happened. So it is as you offer forgiveness to people and they respond in faith the message, that forgiveness is divine, empowered forgiveness that occurs at that point in their life, and that's when salvation occurs at a point in life that has ongoing eternal consequences. And that's the language of this. And if people reject the message of forgiveness, that too has ongoing eternal consequences. It'll be withheld, which means judgment is the only thing that will follow. So this, this commissioning, at the end of this meeting of Jesus and the disciples on Sunday evening, the, Sunday evening after the resurrection of Jesus, is, is an amazing, it is just an amazing theological point that is occurring. The commissioning of these, uh, these men is in line with the commissioning of the Father, of Jesus by the Father, with the same authority and the same power. And that's why they're gonna go out and do the messianic miracles of Jesus. For a short period of time as recorded in the early chapters of the book of Acts. So I I wanted you to also understand, and I know I'm dumping a lot on you guys to, to really try to grapple with. But this again is another extension of the new covenant. Because this is what they're announcing. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 and 37 talks about this. That God is going to offer forgiveness to his people. He's going to cleanse them from their sins. He's going to walk with them in eternal fellowship. I'm summarizing some of the elements of the new covenant in his old testament passages and that's what Jesus he said this to Mary go tell the guys this and now he's telling them this is new covenant language and this commissioning is and this is what they're doing this commissioning is go out and tell the new covenant gospel it's all about forgiveness it's all about cleansing from sin and and it's going to depend on how people respond and that response of course is what the gospel insists on a response faith. Whew, I've been going pretty strong. Let me slow down and see. Are you with me here? Any questions that you have? I mean, I've really put a lot on you Dr. Ekman? for you to process. Dr. Eckman? Yes. I, uh, so in verse... Speak up, Fred. For some reason, it's not coming out very clearly. In, in verse uh, In verse 23... Yes. The forgive, that would be the same as justification? That would be the consequence of justification. I mean, forgiveness and justification are synonyms. Forgiveness is one of the results or consequences of you put your faith in Christ, you're justified, and you receive the forgiveness. You know, the 33 things that happen to us when we put our faith in Christ. One of those is forgiveness, but Fred, I think he's emphasizing this here because that's such a key element of the new covenant. Yes, of the new covenant language in, Genesis, in Jeremiah thirty-one and so on. That's a good question. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. And Dr. Eckman, uh, Jim here. Yes, Are, is there any extra biblical evidence of the resurrection witnesses or? Um. Yes. Um. <laughs> uh. Yes, there are there are some. It's um. Some of them are in the very early uh, individuals of church history that are not mentioned in the, in the New Testament scriptures. Some of them, Jim were uh, were or would be disciples of the apostle john but um it's it, other than that it's it's pretty scant um so i'm not i'm not sure i'll to answer your question what you have in the new testament are witnesses that number in the hundreds because you have the 500 that christ appeared to plus all the others that are mentioned in some of the things i put on that sheet but um outside of that and a, a couple of the disciples of john apparently uh i don't know of any other extra biblical witnesses people that um i'm just trying to think here to make sure i'm i'm i am going through my mind all of the different sources <laughs> but I, I don't i don't believe so i don't believe so okay, thank you all right well, no more questions or comments, I'm going to move on. Let's go to verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin. The Greek term for twin is Didymus. So what does that mean? That means that Thomas is a twin. Who's the other twin? There are some expositors who suggest Matthew, one of the other disciples, is the twin brother of Thomas that is suggestive, it's not definitive, and there are some reasons for that, but it's just, again, I find this always interesting, and each one of the the writers of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do this, they just choose to tell us little facts, tell us little tidbits of information, but this, this is also important for you and me, because we regard Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as history, this isn't myth, This isn't legend, this is history. And so these men are recording either what they saw or what others saw and explained to them. John saw all of this. So he was there and he knew, he knew Thomas as the twin. That was his nickname. His nickname was apparently Didymus twin. And so he's just telling us that that's an important piece of information, but it's an important piece of information that this is real history. They are telling us facts, telling us information that was important to them, and so they're writing it down. Now, granted, they're also writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but those who care about analyzing the scriptures as historical documents, which I do when I study it, this helps us to understand these individuals are writing down facts that were important to them that are reflected in their account of these events going on. John, Thomas, one of the twelve, was called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came, what we just read about. So that's Sunday night. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless, so Thomas is establishing a condition unless i see his the hand, mark of his in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side where that roman member of the execution squad thrust the spear into his side i will never believe so in my bible i circled the word unless and i circled the phrase never believe if they don't meet these if he doesn't meet these conditions i'm not going to believe So Thomas, it's not unreasonable, actually. I mean, I think you would agree. This is not an unreasonable condition. I want to see the tactile, tangible evidence that he's really alive. So he's setting up the condition. Well, John now answers. Eight days later, the next Sunday, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas said to them, Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, again, John is just letting us know this fact. The room is locked. Jesus came, stood among them. Shalom. Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, now notice the verb. It's in in the imperative mood. It's command. Put your finger here. See my hand. Put your hand. Place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I wish John would have then said, and Thomas taking his fingers, put it in to the wound on Jesus' hands. And Thomas taking his hands, thrust it into the side. It doesn't say that. The text says, and John, Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. I think we are to infer that as soon as he saw Jesus who started to talk to him. That was enough of the evidence. He didn't have to put his finger into the, the healed wounds of Christ. And this is one of the greatest confessions in the Bible. Because when, when Thomas says this, he uses the two terms, "kurios" and theos. But he uses the personal pronoun, my Lord. And my God. So, this is an important confession, but it's also an important confession of the deity of Jesus Christ. Thomas doesn't say, my Lord, and the representative of the real God. He says, my Lord and my God. From the mouth of Thomas is a confession. It's unambiguous, it doesn't lack clarity it's crystal clear with clarity. He is affirming the deity of Jesus Christ, the God-man. And there's just, there's no lack of clarity here. The, The Greek is clear. There's nothing ambiguous about it. He is confessing that Jesus is not only his kurios, he's his God. Jesus said to him, "'Have you believed because you've seen me?' Rhetorical question, which obviously insists upon the answer, yes. And then Peter says something that applies to you and to me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I'd encourage you to write in your Bible there, 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. You and I are a part of that. We are blessed because we have believed. We never saw the resurrected Lord. We never saw the resurrected Lord standing in front of us with the marks of the scars from his crucifixion, but we still believed. So Jesus is saying something that I find quite encouraging to me personally. There is a special blessing for those who have believed but have not seen. You and I have seen with the eyes of faith, but we didn't see as Thomas saw. And this is—he I mean, is, he is not chastising Thomas. He isn't. Thomas has believed, and that's what the Lord wanted, but he's saying something that is even more significant for you and me applicationally, and so it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic narrative, which it causes Thomas to, again, I said it now a couple of times, to utter one of the greatest confessions in the history of the church. This is the Lord God Jesus Christ. Jim, I have so a question. You have this you. wonderful, wonderful affirmation. I have a question. <laughs> As as we travel this road of faith and belief in Jesus Christ, and from the time we maybe come to know Christ as our personal savior, and then as we go through life, doesn't God want us and Christ want us to be totally honest with him when we have these times of unbelief and of course. and just pour out our hearts to him and, and get through times that are difficult of course yeah i mean uh, i always think i may even said it in the class here before but i i always go to the psalms when i'm in a time of doubt or a time of questioning and and that's what you see in uh, many 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 of the psalms you see the psalmist lamenting the situation that he's in whatever that context is whatever the specifics are and he really in some in some cases, he's really ticked off at God and he tells God that. But at the same time, I mean, in the ups and downs of life, I don't think it catches God off guard when we do express doubt or question or even share the in-depth concerns about whatever it is specifically that's happening. And God understands that. I really do believe that with all my heart. And again, when it, Psalms are some of the best places to go. Because the psalmist, as the psalmist works through whatever's happening, every psalm ends with worship and recommitment to the Lord. There's no other place for me to go, Lord. I don't have the answer to all my questions. And so, I mean, that's faith. That's faith in action. But yeah, to be honest with God, don't be dishonest with God because he knows what's going on anyway. (laughs) I mean, you can say something, but if you don't mean it, he knows what's going on. So you might as well just tell him honestly and openly. (laughs) True. Thank you, Jim. Now, this next verse, actually both verses, is in a way the thesis statement of the book of John, which is really strange because most writers in the books I've written, I have put the thesis in the introduction. But John waits to the end to tell us. But look at this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by leaving, you may have life in his name. So if you go back, uh, I encourage you maybe sometime to take a, a concordance and look in the Gospel of John, how many times the term signs is used. It's a favorite word of John. He uses signs all over the place as a term for the miracles of Jesus. So John just says, Jesus did many, many more proofs to his disciples, proofs of his resurrection, which are not written in the book. I chose not to write this down. But what I did write, I've written down with an intended purpose. This is a purpose clause that you may believe The verb believe or the noun believe is used 90 times in the Gospel of John. That's the most important verb in the Gospel of John. Believe or the noun believe. That's the intended purpose. John is saying, I wrote all this down with this purpose, that you may believe. And what is the content of the belief? Twofold. That Jesus, Jesus means Savior, is the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, which, of course, is the proof, the phrase for the proof, that he is the incarnate God, and that by believing, the consequence of belief is you may have life in his name. What life? Well, the present abundant life, which Jesus talked about, but specifically, of course, eternal life in his name, which is the name, which is the whole point of the authority and power that comes with the name of Christ. So John is just reviewing for us again why did he do this? Why did John write all this down? I mean he didn't didn't, certainly isn't getting royalties from it. That isn't the way the early church worked. He isn't getting any particular benefit from it, but he's doing it so that people will read it and believe that he is the Messiah, the proof for that is all over the Gospels and the Son of God, especially in the Gospel of John, because I refer you to one verse, John eight fifty eight. before Abraham was, I am the title of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And so it's just in the result of that, and that's exactly what the Apostle Paul will say. You come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. Jesus says in John 6, 47, he that believes has eternal life. John says in John chapter 3, Jesus says, Nicodemus, be born again and you'll have eternal life. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. You know all those verses. So John is just summarizing everything he's been doing for 20 chapters. with a purpose statement. And here's the purpose. Now there is one more chapter in the gospel of john and this this one more chapter is additional um, appearances to jesus but by jesus excuse me but more importantly is the reconciliation of the apostle peter now what time is it we'll never get this chapter done but we'll we'll, we'll get started on it we'll finish it all next week so if you have any questions on the gospel of john next week is your last chance to answer, ask them so write out all your questions, you know, type them out neatly so you can read them, and then we'll go over them next week because we are going to finish this book next week. So let's that get was, the start started. I, I have in the, a question. Uh, yes. I'd like, Ronald. Know, I'd like to know where that uh, Jesus sometime after his resurrection is walking with a couple And it's the road to something. I don't remember. Road to Emmaus. Emmaus. Uh It's in Luke chapter 24. What is it? Luke chapter 24. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, that's where he is uh, talking to the, uh, they're called the Emmaus disciples because they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Okay. Which is west of Jerusalem. What chapter? 24, 2-4, Luke 24. Okay, thank you so much. Yep, you bet. All right, let's begin chapter 21. Again, we will not be able to finish this because of time, but we'll get started. After this. Now, what what does John mean by that? After this. Presumably, he means after that first week, the Sunday, which Jesus was resurrected, and the next Sunday, eight days later, is when he met with the disciples that we just read about. So after this really critical week, because remember, that week from Sunday of the resurrection to Sunday when he meets with the disciples we just read about, is the Feast of Passover followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So those two things are going on parallel. So after this week, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That is a very unusual name for the Sea of Galilee it's one of the only times in the New Testament that the Sea of Galilee is called the Sea of Tiberias. Now it's called the Sea of Tiberius because Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great who ruled that area, had built a city on the west side of the Sea of Galilee and dedicated it to Caesar Tiberius, Because uh, when Jesus is crucified, which we've now been studying, Tiberius is the Caesar in Rome, and so because I I know I'm explaining something that you probably don't care about, but it's important to me, so I'm going to say it. So the the Sea of Tiberius is just reflecting Herod Antipas had dedicated this to the Caesar, and so that's just, John just chooses to tell us that, and he revealed himself in this way. This is what the chapter is about. Simon Peter, Thomas the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, we met him in chapter 2, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. That's a total of seven. We don't know who those two others are. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. So these seven, they had been in Jerusalem for the crucifixion. They had seen Jesus the following Sunday, which we just read about in chapter 20. And so now they head back home I mean, they got to eat. They got to feed their family. Peter's married. He has a family. So I'm going fishing. I know things are going to happen, but I'm going fishing. I got to feed my family. And they said, we'll go with you. I don't think this is a statement of disbelief. I don't think this is a statement of apathy or complacency. They're just waiting to see what's going to happen. They got to feed themselves. They got to feed their family. So they're going fishing. We'll go with you. They went out and got into uh, the boat. At night, they caught nothing. That's still true today. There are about 28 different species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. There's still a lot of fishing in the Sea of Galilee. It's about 13 miles long, 17 miles wide. They fish at night. The fishing boats are typically about 15 feet long. On the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, there's a little, there's a museum there dedicated to a ma- major military officer in the Israeli army. But in that museum is what is called the Jesus Boat. They found submerged in the mo- in the mud a number of years ago, a fishing boat from the first century. And it, it gives us a lot of understanding what the fishing boats were. The thing is 15 feet long. That's a fairly formidable boat. And so they're doing, they're, these are all fishermen. They've been in fishing business. So they're back getting food to eat. It's night, verse four. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. That is simply because of the distance. It's quite a bit of distance. And so what happens? Jesus said to them, children. The word there in Greek is it's, it's It doesn't mean infant. It just means children. Little ones. Spiritually. Do you have any fish? They answered and said, no. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Now, remember, this is morning. They they're started heading into shore. So here's Jesus saying, Go st- don't fish. Don't stop fishing. So they cast it. Now they were able, not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Kind of reminds you of Luke chapter 5, where every fish in the Sea of Galilee jumped into the net that Peter had in Luke 5. This is similar, but John is going to tell us over in verse 11, there were exactly 153 fish in that net. Now, I want to ask you two questions. Number one, why does John in verse 11 tell us there were 153 fish in the net? Two reasons. Number one, he's a witness to this, and he is recording this as a fact for you and me to believe. Again, gentlemen, this is an important point for you and me as an apologetic. This is history. This isn't made up. And John is going to the length to make sure we understand, as every fisherman would do, they count the fish, clean the fish, and get ready to eat them or sell them in the market in Capernaum, which is where they are. And so he's going to the extent of telling us exactly how many fish in but because they had been fishing all night, they're tired, they're worn out. And Jesus said, okay, row on the right-hand side, and the quantity of fish is so hard they can hardly hold in. Immediately Peter says, it is the Lord. And so it is because of the Messianic miracle that just occurred. There's yeah. no other explanation for what occurred. And again, I I refer you back to Luke chapter 5, which is another, it's an early part of Jesus' public ministry, when the guys have been fishing all night, and Jesus says, cast your nets out again, and Peter says, you know, this is crazy, Lord. We know what we're doing. Who are you? But I'll do it, and and an enormous number of fish. And so, I mean, he's, and he knows that's the Lord. I I have a question. Yeah, please. Please. Um, are, does that indicate that uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved was Peter? It said he said to Peter. Right? So I'm. I'm no, mis- I'm sorry. The disciple thing. whom Jesus loved is uh, the one who said, It is the, is Lord. the Lord. Right. Okay. He okay. Says to Peter, the, okay. It is the Lord. Okay, thanks. There is no other explanation for that. And that's what he said. I'm sorry. You, you, you're right. What time is it here? Let me do one more thing. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his out, on outer garment, because for the most part, when they're fishing, they're, he's not naked, but he, he's down to just what would cover his genital waist area. For he was stripped for the work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they had been were not far from the land, for about a hundred yards off. But that's an approximation, but that's how far they were. And when they got into boat, they saw it when they got out of the boat, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught. I'm going to stop there, but I want you to observe this. To me, this is quite powerful. Here's the resurrected God-man. The power of of Jesus as the God-man, the power of Jesus as the Son of God, the power of Jesus as the resurrected Lord, he's still servant. He's still the servant. He's still, John 13, acting out servanthood by washing. in that case, Washington. Here he is, he's making breakfast for these men. Don't you find that extraordinary, man? Here's Jesus, the Lord of the universe, making breakfast for these disciples, these seven men. And to me, that is just another reflection of the extent to which God will go to demonstrate his love, his grace, and his mercy that is exemplified in the servanthood of Jesus Christ. And here you see it again. These guys are gonna eat a meal that the creator of the universe just made for them. I'm going to stop there. Tomorrow we'll pick up, or I mean next Wednesday, we'll pick up with verse 11 and and how the Lord Jesus restores Peter. It's, It's one of the most tender passages in the Bible. And then we'll finish the book. I have a number of things I want to say tying it all together. And I'm going to introduce our next study, which is going to be in the book of Jonah. And that's a tremendously important Old Testament minor prophet, but it has a lot to say to us for the 21st century. So we're going to study it. It's not a big book, but I think you'll find it a good review because we all know at least some of the book. And we'll do another minor prophet, and we'll come back to the New Testament. All right, I'm going to pray here and let you go. Please enjoy this fantastic day that the Lord has created for us. Father, we're grateful for the gospel accounts grateful for the the evidence that we are to trust this as history. This isn't made-up myth or made-up legend as theological liberalism and based in the 19th century. These are facts, these are history. And I'm always struck, as we are in the middle of reading, but I'm always struck that John even tells us exactly how many fish were in that net that they cast out in obedience to Jesus. It's just these little tidbits of information, factual pieces of information that help to, um, again, convince us. These are witnesses. These are people who saw these things. John was there. He saw these things. He writes it down. So, Lord, help us to understand and see the Word of God is trustworthy. These are valid accounts of what really happened. This isn't made up. And that really heightens our desire and willingness to trust this is factual. And the important point is what John said there at the end of chapter 20. I put all this down in writing so that you may believe that he is the Messiah, the son of God, and that in believing you have eternal life. That's the gospel in summary. Thank you for every person here. I pray and trust that they have uh, put their faith in Christ and that they are headed to heaven and are even now experiencing the blessings of eternal life, because eternal life begins now. As we begin to see things from the perspective of eternity, we have that eternal significance to all we do. Bless these men, enable them, and strengthen them to be good representatives of you as strong men of faith, men of God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.